Welcome to Exotic Pets. I'm Tracy Hotchner, whom you may know as the dog and cat lady, but I'm wearing a different hat here. With the brilliant collaboration of my co-host, Dr. Doug Mater, the world-renowned veterinarian specializing in exotic animals, we are here to celebrate all the other pets that share people's lives. This show is for people interested in pets that slither, hop, creep, fly, or swim, from bunnies to iguanas, parrots to ferrets, snakes to tortoises. Dr. Doug is going to teach us the physical requirements of these exotic pets and how to manage the often challenging environments and correct diets essential to their welfare. Dr. Doug Mater is the author of the wonderful memoir, The Vet at Noah's Ark, Stories of Survival from an Inner City Animal Hospital. He is recognized worldwide as a veterinary specialist on exotics and is the author of four major veterinary textbooks on reptiles and amphibians. We are proud to have ZooMed Laboratories as the founding sponsor of Exotic Pets. ZooMed has earned its reputation as the number one reptile and amphibian supplier in the world from simple beginnings 45 years ago as a passion project for one man who still runs it. Renowned as the international leader in UVB and heat lighting, ZooMed manufactures all their reptile supplies, accessories, and tools in the U.S., which they test on their own collection of animals, which surround everyone at headquarters. We're also sponsored by Oxbow Animal Health, the one brand that has stood out for more than 30 years as the leader in health and wellness for small mammals. Veterinarians, rescues, and passionate pet parents worldwide trust Oxbow to support the health and happiness of their small pets. Oxbow provides for rabbits and guinea pigs, ferrets and chinchillas, hamsters and gerbils, mice and rats, because these small pets have big hearts and require special nutrition and care. Oxbow has everything needed for their best life, the right hay and nutritionally complete foods, treats and supplements, litter and bedding, and a whole line of enrichment products created so your little loved ones can chew, play, hide, and explore every day. We're also brought to you by the bird food specialist Zupreme, which started with a revolutionary yet simple idea, provide exceptional diets for extraordinary animals. Best known as the bird nutrition specialist, Zupreme creates many foods for birds of all sizes, and they also make a variety of treats to appeal to every sort of bird and enhance their lives. I am delighted to be back with Dr. Jennifer Graham. I think if you haven't listened to our first conversation, you really should. This woman really knows about birds. The case of the one-eyed owl, you could hear about that in the first conversation we had, which was the subtle signs of a sick bird. But Dr. Graham, I'd love to talk about more serious signs of illness in a bird because you talked in our last conversation, and we can bring it up again, of how disturbing it is to you as a person who cares a lot about birds and cares a lot about your profession that people often don't come to you until a bird is too sick to even save, much less treat. So what about this idea that people have birds and have no idea of the kinds of signs and symptoms that are huge neon sign. This bird needs to get to the vet right away. What are some yeah, of those absolutely. signs? If they're going to miss the subtle ones, we better, we darn well better tell them the, the more glaring ones. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about last time was how these, um, these birds are prey species they hide their signs of illness. And so keep that in mind that their, their signs of illness can be subtle. Um, so we talked last 
time about how a bird that's fluffed yes. skin or feather changes are important. But in terms of some of the physical signs of illness, um, in relation to the feathers, one of the things to look at is the feathers around the nostrils and the feathers on top of the head. If those look matted up or wet, that can be a sign of nasal discharge, respiratory disease, or even GI, like regurgitation, because that wow. can get stuck to their feathers. So their feathers should be smooth and sleek and, you know, birds feathers are gorgeous. If yes. they look tattered, tattered, if there's, you know, like fluid or matted debris on them, if they have any sort of soiling around their vent, um, that is abnormal. So any of those things should alarm you. Um, respiratory disease is a big one. And so um, birds are unique. They don't have a diaphragm. So they're not like us, and they they have the keel bone in the front, and that's what they move in and out to breathe, which is an important point. We never want to squeeze a bird across the middle, across oh. the keel. They can't breathe, so they could die. So be very careful not to squeeze across the chest. Um, but when they have respiratory disease, something to realize is they have very efficient lungs and air sac system. Um, and so when they start to show signs of respiratory distress, that's a big deal because they've been, you know, they've, should we like start that part over since my phone just dinged? No, it's fine. Go on. It's, we're, we're used to technological glitches. It didn't, nobody oh, no. minded. I'm, I'm, I'm just riveted by this thing about respiratory disease. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you your bird is having trouble breathing, like making a noise, surely we don't have to tell you that is terrible. That's a bird is gasping yeah. for air. That shouldn't be like, but I wonder if it's, it's really a problem. No, it's really but a the problem. Subtle signs, um, one of the subtle signs is actually a tail bob of all things. And so oh. when they're having respiratory difficulty, they'll have increased respiratory effort. And what will happen is they're using their, their belly muscles essentially to help with breathing. Their tail will bob up and down every time they breathe and birds can behaviorally tail bob but if they're having respiratory signs watch their breathing and if their tail goes up and down when they're breathing that's a sign of um that's it's a subtle sign and then some other signs that may not be quite so obvious like they may be open mouth breathing if they have stuff up in their nostrils their sinuses but the more serious signs is if they have their head and neck stretched out and just like you said if they're gasping that's not good. And so watching for that is, is definitely more pronounced. And if they start to stretch their wings out along with that, um, they, they can get airway obstructions. So that's real key that they need help immediately. If okay. So what are the, what are the things you do besides help with the zoological things at zoos and you trained on birds of prey? What about the ER? You do some work in, in a specialty hospital that's where you come often or usually maybe with a dog or a cat. Do many or 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 a lot of specialty hospitals have someone like yourself available so that if your bird is really struggling in ways that make it clear to you, this is not you wait for an appointment, you know, or wait and see. You need right. to get the dog, right. the, the bird. I keep saying dog. I beg your pardon, folks. You need to get that bird right away into his carrying case and get him to the ER. Can they, even if they aren't specialized as you are in exotic and avian medicine, can an ER, does an ER doc have the training to know what to do to intervene to save that bird from choking to death? 
Well, I would say um, I wish they did. Um, some of them do. And so part of it is in vet school, not all veterinary schools teach exotic animal medicine. And if somebody has an interest in those species, they typically will seek out additional training, continuing education to get experience and knowledge. And um, I've actually, this is a passion of mine, and I actually helped uh, write a book on exotic animal emergency medicine. No kidding. And so a lot of the, I did, yeah. Wow. And, and a lot of the ERs keep that on hand, and it has, you know, kind of like step-by-step, step, this is what you do. And so having a good reference can be helpful. But what I try to do is I do a lot of training for veterinarians and, and to get ER doctors a little bit more comfortable because there are some immediate life-saving skills that they can have that can help these patients in distress. Um, but a quick mention on not all emergency facilities are willing or you know able to see exotics. And so anyone who's having an emergency, it's helpful if you call first, make sure that they're able to see your bird or whatever exotic it is, because the last thing you want to do is go there and then find out they can't be seen. It'd be horrible. And so that's the frustrating thing is sometimes it takes a little bit to find, a, you know, a, a facility that's able to see them. Well, I guess it goes back yet again to the idea that if you are going to be the guardian of an exotic animal or bird, which is an animal too, you have to have a vet ahead of time. You cannot wait for a subtle or serious sign that your bird's sick. It's too late to go Absolutely. and start a relationship. It's too late to find a doctor who not only is okie-dokey withholding a bird or, or diagnosing a bird, but really eager to, wants to, cares like you do. I think it's amazing that you wrote the book that the ERs have like, uh-oh, we better get down Jennifer Graham's book because we've got, <laughs> you know, we got a macaw coming in and this person said something and I don't know what they're talking about, but maybe it's in the book. I mean, that's sort of what happens when you own exotics. There aren't that many doctors that are passionate and got that extra training you did. Or or let's say they did, but they haven't seen a bird in three years. You know, you sort of need lots of practice, don't you, to be really comfortable and know what should look right and what looks wrong? Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things I joke around with ER doctors who are nervous about seeing exotics. They, them being nervous about seeing exotics is me nervous about seeing dogs and cats. That's adorable. That's I, so cute. I've just done exotics for 20 years, and I, I went back into practice with a friend of mine seeing some dogs and cats, and it was like vet school all over again. Wow. <laughs> so I get it. Isn't that it interesting? Does, it does take some work. All right, so then <laughs> let me ask you a question, even though we're talking about serious signs, your bird may be sick. What was the difference, because you're very tuned in to people as well as animals, is, were there differences that you could kind of generalize about between the owners of exotics versus the owners of dogs and cats? I'll, let me, I'll ask it more directly. Are exotic owners as neurotic as dog and cat owners when their animal's sick? Are they as hard to deal oh, with? Yeah. Yes. They are? Oh, yes. I mean, more so. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, like, if you think about the high-value horses and how people are kind of like, you know, a little crazy. And I'm speaking for myself. I'm, I'm crazy about my animals too. But I swear to you, rabbit owners are kind of like that. Really? We joke around that they're little horses. And I swear to you, that is true. Isn't but yeah, that they, interesting? They definitely. We have some very ex eccentric people um, with, with the exotics and they love them just like they do sometimes, you know, their own kid. So, right, sure and, they, and even they, to excess. Well, I hope that the excessive love and attention that they want to sh 
shine on their pet also means an, as an, at least an appropriate amount of medical intervention just for wellness, just for the annual exam, just for having a vet you can get in touch with, you know, and ask, you know, I, I my, my bird lost more than an ounce this week. Should I be concerned? Because you talked in our last conversation about having a little scale or maybe, I don't know, for a macaw, maybe you need a large scale, and weighing it every week. Can you give a couple of tips on the best way to weigh them? Because Dr. Doug and I were talking about this where snakes were concerned. I'm like, how do you roll up a snake and put it on the on the scale? He said, you put it in a box. Okay, that's pretty logical. What do you do with, the, with a bird? It's not going to just stand properly on the scale and not move around, right? Well, if they are trained for step up and step down, they, they absolutely will. Oh, so how some cool. birds and, and I get a platform um, so you get a, a platform scale so that there's an area where you can either put a perch or a bucket or have the bird stand there. Um, but yeah, weighing in one gram increments is important. And even if you have a macaw, as long as your scale weighs up to about two kilograms, which most of the postage scales way more than that, you're totally fine. Um, but some birds will just sit on the scale platform and it may move around a little, but uh, you can get a, a good generalized uh, weight idea. on that. Birds that are you know, good about stepping up and stepping down onto a perch, um, I actually just have a little perch that's on the scale that's it, and it's teared out, uh, but the birds will step right up on the perch and oh, that nice. makes it pretty easy. Um, for the birds, we do have birds that are nervous and um, that are not hand-trained Sometimes we have to have them more contained. So we might use a little, like you could even use something as simple as a cardboard box with holes punched right. in there, uh, a paper bag for a little bird, you know, something that would keep them from flying off. Um, you just need to tear out the scale. And then to get them, when you're first working on getting them used to it, that's a way you could get a, a weight if they're not going to stand on a teared out uh, perch or right on the scale. So these are all things that people really need to do when their bird is feeling hunky-dory, is teach them how yes, to get up and down really off of a perch. Or how do you do that? Do you give them a swell little treat from Zupreme or something if they get up or get down when you say it, like just as you would train any animal? Yeah, and we, we definitely want to go with positive reinforcement on those things. And sometimes what I do is I'll have special treats that are reserved for right. just the training times to, to give them extra motivation. And so then I, that's, that's one of my um, things that I feel, you know, if, especially for birds that are food motivated, something they don't get that often because then that's going to make them be much more engaged about, Oh, let me pay attention to this. Right. Um, but one of the things you mentioned about before about having a, seeing a vet for wellness, they can help you, they will let you know places that will see their patients on emergency. So then that way you're not calling around. You'll, you'll already have a list that, that you know exactly who to call and that'll save time. That's really good. Now, decreased vocalization. So suddenly the bird is talking less or making fewer bird noises. Do all birds vocalize? No, not all birds will vocalize. I mean, most of them have various things that they, you know, just contact calls that they do in the wild. They're, they're, they're all generally um, will make some of those sounds, but it's not always obvious if you don't have a talkative bird. Right. Um, but absolutely, a change in voice is one of the first signs we have of, um, uh, there's a fungal disease called aspergillosis, and they can get little plaques that happen right where the trachea splits, and that's where their voice comes from. 
And so a change in voice sometimes is the first sign that something's wrong. But then also, if they're having difficulty breathing or otherwise not feeling well, they they may not be as chatty as usual. And most people know if they have birds, a lot of times they vocalize in the morning, they vocalize at night, they may contact call through the day. So if they're not doing those things, that could be a sign of a problem. What about birds like canaries? I mean, we just have a little bit of time left for this conversation, but it, it just occurs to me we're talking about these more dramatic birds, cockatiels, cockatoos, macaws, African greys, even budgies, which you had. But are canaries birds that are taken seriously enough as a pet that they see a vet? There's something about a canary, and I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, that they're kind of like a goldfish from you know, the petting zoo is like, well, a canary. But there must be people who really love their canaries. And I'm thinking of singing and the amazing singing they can do. Are canaries very vulnerable physically? And do they see a vet? Uh, I do have quite a few clients that bring them in. But I agree with you. It breaks my heart because sometimes people think of them as disposable pets. And they're you know, they're just as amazing as the larger birds, yes. but the same sorts of things apply. Okay. They, you know, if you've seen a normal one, they're constantly in motion. They should yes. be, you know, vocalizing, eating, all these things. But if they're fluffed, if their tail's bobbing up and down, if they're in the bottom of the cage, um, any of those things would be serious signs. And, and the big issue about the, the smaller the bird, the higher their metabolism generally, and the, the more quick they get sick and the more quick they die. So you oh, have to be like wow. even more vigilant for those small birds, even more vigilant because, you know, they can't handle as much in the way of not eating and not drinking, and, and they're definitely very susceptible. So they're like the tiniest babies if we wanted to compare it to humans, like little newborns. They're just more vulnerable. Yeah, and there's a reason why, um, you know, we always hear about canary in the coal mine. Right. Because they're so sensitive. And so, yes, absolutely. They're, they, were, they were used in coal mines for a reason. Okay, so we're we're not let's not us think of our pet canaries that way. We're not going to use them as a disposable, you know, carbon monoxide uh, uh, machine that tells us that, <laughs> right? Because I mean, that's sort of what it was. Absolutely. If not, yes, carb- that's exactly yeah. So we don't. We're, but let's, it's just an illustration. No, it is canaries. Yeah, because they're so sensitive, and so to you know, then the smaller your bird is, even the more you should be vigilant about paying attention to these things. That's really great. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer Graham. Thank you for being there for the lucky people, at least in Alabama, who, if they have a problem, or I would think even if you don't have a problem with your bird, take it in to see Dr. Graham because you could have such a good time and learn so much and not be in a stressful situation where there's something wrong. It's really great to have a vet you can enjoy and appreciate and you can love your bird together with her. So thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Doug Mater and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Exotic Pets and our desire to educate and inspire you to give your exotics their best possible life. This show is brought to you by the wonderful companies that cater to the needs of exotic pets. From Zubad Laboratories, where they make everything you need to keep your reptiles and amphibians in tip-top shape, to Oxbow Animal Health, with health and wellness solutions for small mammals, and Zupreme, the company dedicated to your bird's nutrition. And if you haven't read Dr. Doug's book, The Vet at Noah's Ark, yet, do yourself a favor and pick up a copy.